Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. everyone, and welcome back to another Jumpstart Jam session on The Edge. I'm your host, Julie Schmidt. As a psychotherapist and energy healer, I'm here to answer your questions, provide insights, and hopefully share some laughs about life's ups, downs, ins, outs, pros, cons, qualities, and quirks. Last month was my first podcast. To celebrate the loss of my podcasting virginity, this show is titled Most Everything You Need to Know About Sexual Desire in Under a Half Hour, But We're Afraid to Ask. That means I'll be giving you the Cliff Notes version about sexual desire, and if you want to take what I'm giving you further, I'll let you know how at the end of this podcast. Before we get to today's question, let me tell you how I became interested in talking about sex. I was raised in the free-to-be you-and-me 1970s. My parents, Don and Harriet, were hip and mod in their day. Through their sex-positive examples, whether it was the wild artwork in our home or my mother's admiration of Cher, they taught me the beauty of the human body and how it was something to be embraced. When I was little... One of my favorite excursions was going to the beauty shop with my mom. It was an event. There was a party vibe with lots of music, color, platform shoes, outrageous fashion, and makeup. I vividly remember when my mom introduced me to her stylist, Stephanie, and explaining how she'd recently changed her name from Stephen, had seen a doctor, and was now a woman. As Stephanie smiled, took my little hand, and gave it a shake, I thought she was beautiful. Looking back, I realized that introducing her six-year-old daughter to Stephanie was my mother's way of affirming that this person was lovable, admirable, and courageous. Flash forward decades later, I'm working as an energy healer and a psychotherapist, and I meet countless people who carry a tremendous amount of shame and wounding about the topics of sex and sexuality, something that I had grown to embrace. As a healthcare professional, helping people with problems in this area is my calling. Life begins with sex. It's everywhere. Many people are suffering in this area, and working with sexuality comes natural to me. With that said, I now turn to this month's question, which is from Margaret, and Margaret writes, My partner and I are both in our 40s, and we've been together for 17 years. We enjoy sex, but my desire has waned over the years, and no matter how many adult toy parties I attend or episodes of Orange is the New Black that I watch, I just can't seem to get in the mood. 
I find myself going through the motions when I feel my husband is getting tired of my excuses. And then I feel bad because he says he misses the excitement of being lusted after by me. And I really can't blame him. So how do I increase my desire for sex? Margaret, you talk about two things. Your decrease, your decrease in desire and how it differs from your partner's. As for a juicy and relevant question, you nailed it. So I'll briefly address desire discrepancy and then segue into decreased desire. But let me start with a quick story. My friend Jimmy was wild. We worked at the same restaurant when I was in my 20s. And if you've ever worked in the restaurant biz, the banter can get pretty explicit. Well, whenever Jimmy had a new girlfriend, he'd say, we were crawling all over each other like a cheap suit. That was such a palpable visual to describe the early days in many relationships. You're like polyester clinging to each other's skin, oftentimes in public places where people are telling you to go get a room. The cheap suit phenomena can be ridiculously exhilarating. Later in the relationship, a difference in sexual desire often kicks in, or it can be there from the get-go. Either way, this is the most common sexual difficulty among couples, which, when you think about it, makes it normal. So to answer your question, Margaret, I'm first going to highlight some research in the area of desire, because numbers are so sexy. Kidding. (laughs) I'll go into some diagnostic criteria in regards to disordered desire, talk a little bit about our most important sex organ, examine some common beliefs, and briefly touch on the groovy topics of energy medicine and an expansive view of sex. Sound like a plan? Well, what is desire discrepancy? It's when one person wants sex more frequently than the other and it's not happening. One reason it's problematic is because society, the media, and Western culture lead us to believe that happy couples are having wild sex at regular intervals. It's like getting sucked into Facebook where everybody seems to always be frolicking, vacationing, and dining out. It's a projection and it's not a real depiction of life. Oftentimes, people ask me what's normal in regards to how often couples have sex. Well, there really is no normal as far as libido is concerned. It's when there's a discrepancy in desire and it's problematic in your relationship that it's something to be considered. Here's some enlightening research to illustrate how common desire discrepancy is and how it affects relationships. A 2011 research study conducted on couples between the ages of 16 to 64 indicated that 42% of women and 54% of men were dissatisfied with their current regularity of sex. 
So about half of the more than 6,500 people surveyed reported being unsatisfied. That's a lot of people. Not only that, members of both sexes who reported being displeased with their sexual frequency were also more likely to report overall decreased relationship satisfaction. So taken on a large scale, half of the population is dissatisfied with how often they get it on and it negatively affects their relationship. Well, what's going on and what can be done about it? For clarity purposes, let's look at what the American Psychiatric Association has to say about defining decreased sexual desire. Like I mentioned in my last podcast, I like to consult with a big purple book called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5. The DSM contains a list of symptoms and criteria to help get a clear picture of whether or not something is a disorder, and it also gives clinicians a language to communicate. Interesting and important side note, there's an it's about time update on diagnostic language that deserves attention. The old terms for sexual desire disorders are out with yesterday's shoulder pads and Jordache jeans. Yep. According to psychotherapists and authors of the book, Partners in Passion, Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson, impotency for males and frigidity for females aren't being used anymore by scholars and clinicians and are generally frowned upon. They're considered outdated because they suggest worn-out stereotypes. In the past, male sexuality was seen as an expression of power, so sexual problems implied weakness. Standard female sexuality suggested emotional warmth, and women suffering from dysfunctions were considered cold. So the belief that real men should be like Braveheart and women should be like Marianne from Gilligan's Island, is outdated in the diagnostic literature. And that deserves a round of applause. In today's DSM, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD for short, is the currently used term. Both males and females can be diagnosed with HSDD. According to the DSM, HSDD is referred to as female sexual interest arousal disorder and male hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and it's featured by a lack of interest in sex. This can include a reduction of sexual thoughts and a lack of initiating or responding to sexual advances. As for the duration and frequency of occurrence, the DSM says there needs to be a decrease in sexual thoughts and activity for more than six months, and it affects your daily life. There can also be contributing factors in both sexes. For females, HSDD is sometimes related to painful intercourse and problems experiencing orgasm. In men, HSDD is sometimes related to erectile dysfunction or ejaculatory concerns, but not always. And this makes sense. I mean, who wants to have sex when there's very little payoff, frustration, and maybe even unwanted pain? The problem with the DSM model 
is it implies a loss of the desire for this physical function of intercourse, which is limiting in scope and a setup for desire discrepancy, something that normally happens in relationships. So let's look at a more expansive view. It's common knowledge that one causal factor for decreased sexual desire is the length of time a couple have been together. Oftentimes, the first year or so of dating is marked by happily losing sleep to spend the night in the throes of passion. Good times. But according to best-selling author and couples therapist Esther Perel, longevity is not only a factor in the decrease of sex, but a cultural expectation for long-term relationships. This expectation leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy regarding the intensity and frequency of marital or committed sex. The changes go from the wild, passionate sex, when you're all over each other like a cheap suit, that may or may not propel the beginning stages of a relationship to later stages of reduced desire. Over time, the commonly held belief is that the eroticism during the early stages of a relationship will evolve into a love that is more stable and predictable and less fueled by desire. Research on the body's most important sex organ, the brain, supports this view. Neuroscience correlates the changes in passion to hormonal decreases in the brain's love chemicals that are present in the early stages of romantic sexual relations. According to anthropologist and human behavior researcher Helen Fisher, the chemicals norepinephrine, dopamine, and PEA are present in the early stages of relationships and last about three years. But as the relationship evolves and matures, other biochemicals take over. For example, the smuggling drug, oxytocin, lasts longer and plays a more influential role over time. The side effects of this maturing love devotion, namely deep friendship and mutual respect, are often considered to be a natural and equal trade-off for erotic passion. This merging of brain chemistry with the expectation that erotic passion will wane provides further support for the idea that sexual function is fueled by both physical, the brain, and psychological causes in the form of having expectations. What can be concluded here is that even from the level of brain chemistry, emotion is understood to play a central role in satisfying sex. So instead of mourning the decrease in the love chemicals present in the early stages of a relationship, celebrating the chemicals that increase over time is another option. Now let's turn to what intimate relationships look like from the standpoint of the human energy field, or what some people call the aura. If you don't have a background in energy anatomy, just come along for the ride. In Donna Eden and David Feinstein's book, The Energies of Love, Using Energy Medicine to Keep Your Relationship Thriving, they describe the energy field of a couple during different stages of a relationship 
and what that looks like when the sexual charge is present and when it's not. They also energetically distinguish the difference between new love when the brain chemistry is high and what that sexual charge looks like versus the sexual charge of a couple who have been connected over time. For example, a new relationship has the couple encased in a world of their own. My husband used to call that being in the garden, where we'd be at a big party, sitting on a love seat, just gazing into each other's eyes, getting each other food, holding hands, and totally unaware of all the people around us. That was super fun. Anyhow, Eden and Feinstein state that a couple in this stage has an energy field that is electric, radiant, vivid, colorful, and beautiful, even when each person is alone, although not particularly grounded. The couple's energy field lacks the refined connection that's present in a couple who's been through life's ups and downs. The description they give, off, they give of a couple in a stale relationship is one where their energy field is collapsed all around each of them individually, even when they're together. The energy in a stale relationship is stagnant and is no longer bright and radiant. Lastly, they describe a renewed bond where the energies of each partner are connected in ways not found in a new relationship. Their auras overlap and are bridged with figure eight patterns. But the energies surrounding them retain more of their individuality than a new couple. So how does the unity of body, mind, and spirit increase desire? Psychologist Douglas Labeer has an energetic view of things as well, but he adds a stage model of couple relationships. He agrees with the changes in sexual intensity a couple experiences, but it takes, but takes it further by incorporating distinctions between types of sexual relationships that he believes occur on different planes of existence, be it the physical, relational, or spiritual realms. In doing so, he, like Eden and Feinstein, implies that the different stages of sex have an evolutionary quality to them, with the highest psycho-spiritual stages occurring later in the relationship. LeBeard designates the type of sex many couples have when they first get together and feel that pull of lust as hookup sex. This type of sex is the most primal, lacking relationship qualities, and is explosive and arousing. British people call it just plain shagging. Next up the evolutionary scale is marital sex, which is, in many people's minds, the boring and uninspired sex that couples who are in committed relationships experience. This stage would be linked with HSDD and the decrease in desire. In terms of treatment options, because these couples have an emotional attachment to one another, they're good candidates for sex therapy. The highest on the evolutionary scale, according to Labeer, is making love. This type of sex incorporates mind, body, and spiritual practices, including elements drawn from yogic and Buddhist tantra 
and Chinese Qigong. Enhanced energy flow between partners is experienced, and the making of a selfless, unified state is the goal. Labir declares, this form of sex broadens, deepens, expands, and sustains arousal and positive tension between you and your partner. Sex therapist Marty Klein, in his book, Sexual Intelligence, agrees with Labir in a couple ways while making some important psychological points. He reduces the centrality of the physical organs to good sex and replaces it with a more holistic approach. He incorporates the couple's psychological states and, like Labir, includes a view of sex as an energy-sharing experience. He is critical of the overly physical approach to treating sexual dysfunction that focuses on improving the function of the organs. He declares that techniques don't help people have better sex, which may be why going to all those adult toy parties your friends throw can be fun, but ineffective in action. On Tristan Terramino's cutting-edge podcast, Sex Out Loud, Klein says, people don't need another sexual position. Their penis and vulva are fine. They're just not having a quality experience. What helps most people is a sense of relaxation and comfort versus getting the genitalia to behave differently or better. If people don't relax and enjoy themselves, then a wet vulva or a bunch of positions won't help. People need to reshape the experience so they have more of a sense of movement of erotic energy. Sometimes that includes intercourse, sometimes not. Note in Klein's critique, the centrality of comfort, relaxation, and the sharing of energy as key to satisfying sexual relations. Interesting. The former two characteristics, comfort and relaxation, are linked both to the psychology of securely attached relationships and the physical chemical shift in the brain towards stabilizing hormones in long-term relationships. Note also the link to the energetic view of sexual relations as drawn from Asian views that incorporate the body, mind, and spirit. The value of Klein's and Labeer's approaches is that they offer a different model of how in long-term, how sex in long-term relationships changes. Rather than a loss of the physical function model built of a DSM-inspired view of sexual disorders or a loss of libido and desire model, which is taken from neuroscience and marital self-report research, the energetic model points towards horizons of sexual growth. This growth holds the promise for both healing of emotional wounds and creating deeper intimacy, which is the topic of a workshop series I'm offering, but more on that in a minute. Okay, so to bring it all home, I took Margaret's question, how can I increase my sexual desire and be more in tune with my partner? and answered to look toward the energetic model drawn from Eastern principles 
to experience a sense of movement of erotic energy. Thank you, Margaret. I highlighted some research, discussed diagnostic criteria, talked about the neuroscience and causal factors of decreased desire that can lead to desire discrepancy, and touched on the topics of Eastern energy anatomy and reshaping the experience of sex. The psychotherapeutic work that I do with people in regards to sexuality takes the sex-positive approach I was raised with, combined with my decades of experience and education in Eastern energetic practices and energy medicine in a way that can help couples and individuals with sexual problems. If you'd like to delve deeper and learn the first step in taking your sexual relationship to the next level of passion and intimacy, I'm offering a one-hour introduction to my workshop, Soulful Sex Secrets. The introduction will be held live at Gallery 36 in Minneapolis on May 19th at 7 p.m. The cost is $10 a person. Space is limited, so register now. At this one-hour introduction, you will come away with, one, how to create a ritual to have a conversation about sex with your partner, two, a sneak peek into the content of the workshop, Soulful Sex Secrets, three, an enlivening, educational, interesting, and fun experience. Pre-registration and payment is required, so I know how many materials to have on hand. Also, my mom would turn over in her grave if I didn't serve some nashes. That's Yiddish for a little bit of food. Here's me channeling my mom. Oi, you tell people to schlep across town and then send them home on an empty stomach? Just kidding, I can't channel. So, to register, schedule a couple's or individual counseling session or to ask me a question you want answered on the air, head over to www.jumpstartcounseling.net and contact me through my website. You can also email me directly at julie, J-U-L-I-E, at jumpstartcounseling.net. Please include your phone number so I can call you and get you registered. Also, for words of inspiration, an update on events, and a dose of humor, head over to my Facebook page and like it. Don't forget to join me next month for another Jumpstart Jam session on the edge. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.